Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. everybody to our Sutra Study Sunday. Uh, this is the Shirangama Sutra Part 2, but if you weren't here last week, don't worry, because uh, I am going to recap what we went over last week quickly so that we can kind of get back to where we were, or if you weren't here, you can get up to speed to where we were. Um, very quickly, if you weren't here, this is called the Shirangama Sutra. Shirangama means indestructible. Uh, this is a Mahayana Sutra. Uh, the earliest record that we have of this is the year 705 AD when an Indian monk came to China, came to Canton, Guangdong, and he translated this into Chinese in the year 705. So we, knew, we know that in the year 705 this already existed in an Indian language like Sanskrit, maybe even Sanskrit, and was translated. Before that, who knows? Um, it is a interesting Mahayana Sutra um, in many ways. I wanted to go over the beginning of it really quickly just to reestablish the reason for this sutra. All sutras have a reason in which they were given, a kind of a response. And so just very quickly to reestablish where we are, thus have I heard, once the Buddha was staying in the Jetavana, in Shravasti, with 1,250 monks, uh, there were also all these Pratekya Buddhas. Um, and what had happened was is that the summer meditation retreat had just ended, and the bhikkhus were taking stock of their errors and mistakes, uh, while the bodhisattvas from the Ten Directions came determined to wipe out their remaining doubts and suspicions. Also present was King uh, Prasanajit, who I didn't mention this last time, he's the king of Shravasti. All right, so this is a sutra taking place in Shravasti, and the king of Shravasti has come. All right, so King Prasanajit, who was keeping the anniversary of his father's death, this is not the king that killed his father or any of that, this is all of the king, good king, who's honoring his father's death by keeping a vegetarian feast. This was pretty common. But... What happened was, is that, um, that commanded by the Buddha, Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, took all the Bodhisattvas and all the Arhats and took them all to this royal feast <clears throat> for King Prasanajit. Ananda, the Buddha's young cousin, had not come back from a distant engagement uh, and so was not among those invited. In fact, what happened was is that he was walking through the town begging uh, when he came to a house of prostitution and where Matangi, a low-caste woman, succeeded by means of Kalipa magic to draw Ananda close to her sensual body on a mat so that he was on the point of breaking the rules of pure living. Right? Um... Just on But the Buddha, who was aware of all of this, and after the royal feast, he returned to the Vihara with the king, 
princes and elders who wish to hear about the essentials of the Dharma. So then, the Buddha sent out, so he sends out from the top knot of his head, which is called an ushnisha. We talked about this last time. This is not a hair knot. This is a protrudence of the skull, a sign of wisdom. And this says that the Buddha sent forth out of the top knot of his head a bright and triumphant multicolored light. So, he sent out from his ushnisha a bright, triumphant, multicolored light, within which appeared a transformation, a transformation Buddha seated with crossed legs on a thousand-petaled lotus flower, out of the light, out of his top knot. The Buddha then repeated the transcendental mantra, the Surangama mantra, and ordered Manjushri to use it to overcome the magic and to bring Ananda with Maitangi to the Vihara. All right? So that is the occasion for this sutra. Ananda got waylaid by a prostitute, came close to breaking his vow of pure living. The Buddha knew all about this. Amidst a Shurangama Samadhi light from his Ushnisha with a transformation body Buddha in it on a thousand petaled lotus flower and brings Ananda to the Vihara, right, to the assembly. And what happens after that is, of course, Ananda is totally like, oh my God, I almost broke the rules, da da da. And so he's uh, earnestly asked the Buddha to teach him the primary. Uh, experience in the practice of shamatha, samadhi, and dhyana, uh, which lead to the enlightenment of all Buddhas. And so in order to do this, in order to instruct Ananda, and by the way, I mentioned this last time, but if you weren't here, I want to say this again. This is a great Mahayana Sutra. That being the case, this is not presenting itself as a historical document about that one time that Ananda was late to the meeting because he was with a prostitute. It's not what's going on here. Mahayana sutras are more like allegories. And so what's going on is, is that Ananda is the Buddha's youngest disciple. So he's the, the youngest, the, green, you know, the wettest behind the ears, right? He has the most to learn. Sensual desire, sexual desire in particular, is considered with among Buddhists and in Buddhism the strongest of desires. And in fact, the basic idea is, is that desire, oh, wanting, craving in general is the problem, right? See the Four Noble Truths, right? See Noble Truth number two. That the wanting, the desire, that's the problem. And in Buddhism, sexuality, the sexual act, is sort of just one expression of that wanting and that desire, that having, all right? And so what's happening here is the youngest disciple of the Buddha is dealing with the strongest of clinging emotions. That's what's going on in here. And what the Suramgama indestructible samadhi and sutra is all about is overcoming desire for this world. The things of this world, the pleasures of this world, the sexual pleasures of this world, all of it, all right? That's what this sutra is in the business of doing, all right? So that's what this sort of allegory represents with Ananda 
being late, dealing with his sexual desire, and all of that. The next section, which is basically what we talked about all of last class, was the Buddha says to Ananda basically like, yo, where's your head at? Where was your mind? Kind of asking him, like in terms of him getting waylaid by the prostitute, what were you thinking? What, what was the deal, Ananda? But what he really asks is, he asks Ananda, Ananda, where's your mind? All right? And he goes through, and these, I'm not going to read them in full. I'm going to paraphrase them so that we can get to the new stuff. But he goes through with Ananda, or I should say, Ananda proposes seven different possibilities for where he thinks his mind is. And so his first answer when the Buddha says, where's your mind? He says, it's in my body. Duh, it's between my ears, behind my eyes. It's right, that's where, I don't know where you think your mind is, but the process of this sutra is to examine, for you to examine where you think your mind is. Do you think it's inside your body? Do do you? Well, again, I'm not going to go through this line by line, but the Buddha's answer is, then if it's in your body, why don't you have any awareness of the inside of your body? You have no awareness of the inside of your body, right? Can you see inside your body? Can you smell inside your body? Maybe you can get some pains or whatever, but even a a doctor will tell you that, you know, we can go stabbing in there and you won't really feel it, right? Because you have nerves out here, but not so much in there. So how do you know your mind is in your body? The Buddha says, your argument that the mind is in your body, it's groundless. And so then Ananda says, oh, well, then I got it. My mind's outside my body. And to that, the Buddha replies, well, if your mind is outside your body, why can't you see your own face? Why? Uh, and there's a whole series of arguments that if his mind was outside of his body, then he would be in two places and he would ultimately become two Buddhas, all of this stuff. And so ultimately the Buddha says, the idea that your mind is outside your body is groundless. And again, I don't know who in this room thinks your mind is outside your body. It's kind of a, like... No, nobody thinks it's outside their body. Most of us probably think it's inside our body, though. So you might want to explore the Buddha's analysis of that idea. The third answer that Anand says is, oh, oh, I got it. Then it's, it's hidden inside the sense organ. So the way you can think about it is, number one is it's like inside my body. And then the third one, he says, okay, it's in my brain. Like it's hidden inside the sense organ. Or it's like hidden inside the synapses. It's hidden in there somewhere. But I know it's in there. And again, the Buddha's answer is, well, if it's hidden inside there, why don't you have any awareness of being inside your brain or being inside your synapses? That sounds like an inference to me, but not coming from experience of it. And the Buddha, and Ananda's like, you're right. I got it. It's like an aperture. In fact, what Ananda says is that it's like my bowels. Part of it is out and part of it's in. And where my bowels are in, it's dark. And when my bowels are out, it's light. And Ananda says, uh, or the Buddha says, uh, yeah, Ananda, your, your mind's like your bowels. Yeah, I'll say. No, what he says is, is that, okay, it's like an aperture. Your mind is like an aperture where you can see out, but then in, again, we have this problem of if your mind is like your bowels, why don't you have any awareness of this so-called inner seeing in the darkness of your body? And the same thing happens is that if your awareness is an aperture that's out, 
Same thing. Why can't you see your own face then? Why, if your mind is somehow an aperture out, how can you not see yourself? Therefore, it's not an aperture either. Then Ananda says, oh, no, no, I got to remember, I remember. The Buddha said it arises due to causes and conditions. Ah, ob- sense object, sense organ arises the mind. Got it. And the Buddha says, great. What comes into contact with what in order to arise? A 19th sense datum? A 19th conscious? Where, what, are you di- what are you talking about? And this is denied, that it arises because, well, I'm going to talk a little bit about the consciousness thing, but this is denied. In the sixth answer, Ananda says, oh, I got it. It's, it's like in between. It's in between the inside and the outside. And the Buddha says, you mean like on the surface of your skin? And Ananda's like, no, it's in between. And the Buddha says, where in between? So if it arises, it arises from what? If it's between, is it located somewhere? If it's not located anywhere, what are we talking about? If it's located somewhere, where? Point out to it. And the Buddha says all these analogies about how the totality of this universe is every blade of grass, every bird, every tree, every everything. Everything, everything makes the totality of this world. So where is this, this between you're talking about? And Ananda's like, ah. And he's like, no, it's groundless. And then finally he gives this kind of smart, alecky Buddhist answer where he says, I got it, I got it. That which doesn't cling is the mind. Sounds good, but then the Buddha says, well, if if you're saying it doesn't exist, then it doesn't exist, and things that don't exist don't exist. It's like the hair of a tortoise, right? The hair of a tortoise or the horn of a rabbit. You can talk about it, but if it doesn't exist, it doesn't exist. And then if it does exist, where is it? Again, we're, re- we're dealing with this problem. Where is it? Inside, outside, da-da-da. Until eventually, after all of that, and again, if you're into that, you can read all the Buddha's arguments against those. But eventually, he says, Thereupon, Ananda rose from his seat, covered his right shoulder, knelt upon his right knee, reverentially joined the palms of his hands, and said to the Buddha, I am the Tathagata's cousin. And because of his great, great affection, I have been allowed to be his disciple, but I have presumed upon his compassion. And so although I have heard much of his preaching, I have failed to avoid the worldly. And I have been unable to over, overcome the Kalipa magic, which has turned me round, causing me to visit a house of prostitution. All of this is because I failed to reach the region of capital R, Reality. May the Buddha, the world-honored one, be compassionate enough to teach us the path of shamatha for the benefit of those lacking faith and holding perverted views. After saying this, he prostrated himself with his knees, elbows, and head to the ground. Then he stood up and reveren- stood up in reverential silence with the whole assembly keenly awaiting for the teaching. Then, so, why, question, where's your mind? Then, by the Buddha's transcendental power, all sorts of rays of light as brilliant as hundreds of thousands of suns shone from his forehead. So now we're talking about the urna, the forehead, and now there's light coming from his forehead. And 
Looking good. And there's a, there's a reason why I wanted to draw this out for you. By a Buddhist transcendental power, all sorts of rays of light, as brilliant as hundreds of thousands of suns, shone from his forehead, illuminating, illuminating all the Buddha lands, which shook with six kinds of quake. Thus, a number of worlds, uncountable as the dust, appeared simultaneously, and by the same power, united into a single world system, wherein each of the great bodhisattvas, while staying in his respective realm, brought his palms together to listen to the Dharma in this realm. The Buddha said, since the time without beginning, all living beings have given rise to all sorts of inversion because of the karmic seeds of ignorance. This is why seekers of the truth fail to realize supreme enlightenment, but achieve only the states of shravakas and Pratekya Buddhas or heretics, devas and demons, solely because they do not know the two basic inversions, thereby practicing wrongly like those who cannot get food by cooking sand, in spite of the passing of eons as countless as the dust. Right, so this is also, we talked about this last time, and I would like to, should I do this? Okay, so I'm going to take a quick moment to introduce a fundamental idea that we'll need going forward to really understand what the Buddha is talking about. So I've written these two ideas on the board. Uh, Samskrita versus Asamskrita. Right? Samskrita, conditioned or conditional, and what we are talking about here are actually Samskrita dharmas, conditioned things or conditional things, and Asamskrita dharma. Unconditioned things or just unconditioned dharma. This Samskrita dharmas, this is anything and everything you could possibly think of entirely. You name it. You give me a noun, you give an adjective, you give me a verb. You, anything you could possibly throw at me, I could put in this category of conditioned things. Samskrita dharma. And so I'm going to walk you through this if you maybe never heard this before. Or even if you have, I want to walk you through some ideas around conditioned things, this conditional world. Uh, is there that kind of an articular twist where even the Asamskrita is... Slow down, Tiger. <laughs> Slow down, Tiger. we got to reel it in. No, no. You're like jumping to, to not like hour ahead of time. Okay. <laughs> so, when Buddhism talks about all things are conditioned... Everything in your world, in your universe, everything you can conceive of is a conditioned thing or a samskrita dharma. And so take, for example, me. So here I am. And I've got, I got a lot going on here, right? I'm a human being, right? But you could take a lot of different things, like let's say uh, I'm a husband, right? Now, like... Am I a husband, though? Like, my nature? Was I born a husband? No. Did it, high school? No. No. Well, me being a husband, of course, is dependent upon my wife, right? It's dependent upon her having been part of that situation. I can't just be a husband with no wife, right? And she can't be a wife without 
husband, right? So me being husband, her being wife, that's dependent on, I don't get to just be a husband, right? So that, um, me being my father's son, me being a son, that's dependent upon my father, right? So there's a dependent relationship. I'm not essentially a son, I'm a son relative to my father, right? That it's dependent upon my father that that's what makes me a son, right? Well, okay, and then we could go through like, um, you know, the, the ideas of like occupation. Like if I were to, you know, I, I, I'm, an, I'm an archivist actually. I work in an archive, in a museum. Wow. Um, Monday through Friday, I'm an archivist. Oh, wow. Am I an archivist though? Like, well, no, because if they fired me or whenever the job runs out, I'm no longer an arch archivist, right? That's dependent upon that job. And you might say, no, Michael, even if you get fired, though, you got that degree, even though I don't have a degree in art. But I, I got the job. But let's say I have some degrees, which I do. They'll, oh, yo, you're, you got fired, but you're still an archivist because you got that degree. But isn't that degree dependent upon... The, the college system and dependent upon people that would recognize that degree because if I go to a different country, they're going to be looking at this piece of paper like, eh, no, you're not an archivist here. It's dependent upon the country you're in or whatever, right? So my occupation, that I'm a husband, all these things, uh, hey, let's talk about gender. Let's talk about sexuality, right? Isn't the male, me being, so now I'm a male, right? But couldn't I change my hormonal thing and go through a whole different surgery process? I wouldn't be a man anymore, right? Again, oh, and if somebody, you know, if we want to get all crazy political or whatever, it's an interesting question in terms of, well, then what makes a man? Isn't it dependent upon ideas of testosterone? Dependent upon protruding sexual organs or what have you? So isn't being a man dependent upon a lot? That if those things changed, you wouldn't be a, quote, man anymore, or, say, or vice versa. Is a woman necessarily someone with breasts and a vagina and estrogen at certain levels? What is a woman, right? Well, if you're following what I'm saying, it's all dependent upon other things. And anything that's dependent upon something over here, if this changes, this changes. This is dependent on that. If Holland, my wife, she divorces me, I ain't a husband anymore. It's dependent on her, right? So everybody follow on that, right? So even anatomy, even all these things, it's dependent. Um, let's, talk, let's talk bowls. <laughs> right? So now, we always say, we always talk about this bowl, right? Is this a bowl? Because if, if, if this is your first time here tonight, I'll tell you what, I'm going to get out my, my torch and my hammer, and I'm going to start flattening this out, this out, until it's flat as a pancake. And now it's a symbol, right? Right? So is this a bowl? Is this a bowl? Oh, oh, well, can't we say, so if I caught you, or if, if you know what I'm talking about, you're like, ah, you're right, you're right, Michael, it's not a bowl, it's bowl-shaped, 
right? So because if I flatten it out, it, it would be symbol-shaped, right? So what are we talking about, right? So, is, so it, it being a bowl is, of course, I just told you, dependent upon this shape, right? So its bowlness is dependent on that shape. There's, I mean, we could go on and on and on until we realize, oh, even this is dependent on everything. The idea of round, which is what makes bowls bowls round, is dependent upon the idea of squares. If there were no squares in your universe, if you never went to school ever and learned those ideas of those shapes, would there be such a thing as round? Isn't round dependent upon and relative to something else? How about this one? Is this smooth? Is this smooth? What if I brought in three other bowls that were like, you know, glass? Just by looking at them, you know, they looked wet. They were so perfectly round. And I put it next to this one and asked you, which is the smooth one? Does this look smooth anymore to you? It looks pretty dinged up and rough to me. But a moment ago, it looked very smooth, didn't it? So smooth? Is it smooth? Uh, is it a big bowl? Is it a big bowl or a little bowl? Wait, okay, well, oh, my brain hurts, right? So you're telling me it's not a bowl, it's not big or little, it's not smooth. What is it, right? So these things that we've described, round and smooth and bowl-shaped, these are what are called lakshana qualities, right? Husband, male, archivist, Michael, right? I got the name. Am I Michael? I could go downtown and change that. I could change my name. And then I will have been Michael. There will be those days. Remember the days when I was Michael? But I'm not Michael anymore because I legally changed my name. So my name, dependent, state, papers, all that stuff. Do you see what I'm getting at, right? So conditioned reality, uh, conditioned reality, Everything we're talking about, again, uh, I, am I tall? Am I short? Am I smart? Am I dumb? What am I, right? What, and here's the real question. What am I that's not relative to Holland, my father, all these other people, all these other ideas, these jobs, the occupation? What is like unconditioned? What's independent? Because all of this is dependent, right? In fact, another way of thinking about this is, so this whole world that we live in, the Samskrita Dharma world, it's actually, according to Buddhism, they call it Pratitya Samuttata, codependent origination. So take, for example, my wife, Holly. Which came first? Her being the wife, which makes me the husband, or me being the husband, it makes her the wife? Which is first? Happened, right? We, I do, I do. And we both became new people, a husband and wife, right? At the same time. That codependent arising happens at the same time, and it's the magic of this world, that this world of, the, of conditioned dharmas the way it operates is codependently. 
in terms of, again, all these relationships, smooth, tall, male, female, all of them are dependent on something else. And again, when the thing next to it changes, this thing changes. That's dependent origination. There's one more aspect of this that might be helpful. All right, these are, the, in the orange here, are the six sensory organs. Eye, ear, nose, tongue, uh, body, and the brain. Everybody recognize your six sensory organs, right? This is the way we understand the world. So we have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and a brain. And eyeballs have a sensory object uh, form, actually, form, sound, scent, taste, tactility, and the brain senses actually dharmas, things or ideas or concepts. And according to Buddhism, when the sense organ, an eyeball, comes into contact with form, light and shadow, there arises a consciousness, a vijnana. This is a vijnana, a consciousness. All right, and there's a correspond. There are six consciousnesses that arise from the contact of these. Everybody, follow me on this. Seeing this little thing. This is what are called the 18 realms. All this whole universe you can imagine are in, all the samskrita dharmas fall into these one of six categories. Something is either form, shadow and light, shape, it's a sound, it's a scent, it's a taste, it's a tactile function, smooth, rough, that. The sixth, the brain senses ideas. And so, uh, last week I did the, the little thought experiment where I had us think of last week. Remember last week when it was really hot? Oh, yeah. Right? That heat that is not present now, it's cool now, right? But that heat that you all just thought of, that's an idea, right? Th that's a dharma, a little idea that's rubbing up against your brain. And when that little idea rubs up against your brain, there emerges a little vijnana a little brain awareness of that idea. And you have feelings about that idea. Like, you was like, oh boy, I remember that. So it's not just a cognitive remembrance. You've brought with it emotional feelings about that heat. Remember Sunday? Oh, so that's the dharma. And so the brain plays in dharmas. Feeling dharmas, uh, having feelings about dharmas, if you know what I mean, discriminating dharmas, all of that. The eyes like to discriminate light and shadow, form. Um, we apparently kind of like round things, but square things are a little like, uh, right? So we have feelings about that, sensory memories from all of that. And again, the, all of your reality is involved in one of those six realms. Anything you can think of, all right? Okay. There is only one asamstrifadana. In Buddhism, there's all, it gets tricky. Some say there's three. I don't want you to get too confused, though, because that gets very academic. There is only one unconditioned dharma. There's only one thing that is not conditioned. 
nirvana, this idea of the unconditioned. (laughs) Buddhism will eventually have a zillion names to describe the unconditioned. And think about this. Round, dependent on square. Smooth, dependent on rough. Sounds good, depends on other things, right? So uh, we've, we've talked about color, about how the color of this is actually in between your unique eye, which has a certain structure of rods and cones that see color a certain way. So this goldish bronze color is not inherent to this. It arises when your eye sees whatever this quote is. There emerges this bronze color. But again, it's not specific to this. It's what happens when your eye sees this thing, that it looks bronze, right? So the color of it, dependent on the eye, the rods, the cones, all kinds, the light spectrum. Could be here all day. Dependent, round, dependent, sounds good, dependent. So let's just take all the dependent things away. You tell me when you arrive at the unconditioned. You tell me when you arrive at that which is not conditioned. It's not dependent on anything else. You let me know. Right? The idea of Buddhism is that we are... uh, Actually, I'm going to read a bunch, but we're trapped in in this. Which, by the way, if you've seen Sanskrita looking a lot like Samsara... It's because it is related to this idea. This is also related to uh, samskara. One of the skandhas, the conditioned thought patterns. So all of this idea of our conditioning, being in the conditioning, being conditioned in the conditioning, being a conditioning agent in the conditioning, being conditioned, all of that. That's the normal. That's called samsara, the mundane world just being washed around in the rinse cycle over and over and over again. But what about this side, right? Okay. I have summarized for you this idea that is presented in here when the Buddha says to Ananda, there's two two minds going on here. Conditioned mind and then this pure bright mind that is, it's not this, but it has access to this. So Ananda, As you have inquired about the Shamatha gateway through which to escape from birth and death, I must ask you a question. The Buddha then held up his golden-hued arm and bent his fingers, saying, Ananda, do you see this? Ananda replied, yes. The Buddha asked, what do you see? Ananda replied, I see the Buddha raise his arm and bend his fingers, showing a shining fist that dazzles my mind and eyes. The Buddha asked, how do you see it? Ananda replied, I and all those here use eyes to see it. The Buddha asked, you say that I bend my fingers to show a shining fist that dazzles your mind and eyes. Now tell me, as you see my fist, what is that mind? which perceives its brightness. Ananda replied, As the Tathagata asks about the mind, and since I am using my own mind to search for it exhaustively, I conclude that that which searches is my mind. 
the Buddha said, Hey Ananda, this is not your mind. Ananda stared with astonishment, brought his two palms together, rose from his seat and asked, If this is not my mind, what is it? The Buddha replied, Ananda, this is your false thinking, which arises from external objects, deludes your true nature, and deceives you into mistaking, since the time without beginning, a thief for your own son, thereby losing sight of that which is basically permanent, hence the round of birth and death. I'm going to skip ahead. This was from last time. So even if you succeed in putting an end to all seeing, hearing, feeling, knowing, and so preserve inner quiet, the shadow of your differentiation of things, dharmas, still remains. I do not want you to hold that this is not your mind, meaning the one that's totally quiescent without any images. He says, I don't want you to hold that that's not your mind, but you should examine it carefully and minutely because that which continues to possess discerning nature, even in the absence of sense data, that's really your mind. On the other hand, if this discerning nature ceases with sense data, so there's sense data, I've got consciousness, right? If this discerning nature ceases with sense data, this is merely the shadow of your differentiation of them, for they are not permanent. And when they cease to exist, so does this so-called mind, like the hair of a tortoise or the horn of a rabbit. If your dharmakaya, your dharma body, can so easily cease to be, who will then practice and realize the patient endurance of the birthlessness of all things? After hearing this, Ananda and all those present were completely bewildered. (laughs) Practicing students, the Buddha said, even after they have realized the nine successive states of dhyana, Still, still cannot step out of the stream of transmigration and so fail to become arhats because they cling to this samsaric false thinking which they mistake for capital R reality. This is why, though you have heard much of my dharma, you have failed to attain the holy fruit. After hearing this, Ananda in bitter tears prostrated himself with his head, knees and elbows on the ground, knelt and brought his palms together saying, after I left home to follow the Buddha, I merely relied on his transcendental power and always thought I could dispense with practice since he would bestow samadhi upon me. I did not know that he could not be my substitute and so lost sight of my own fundamental mind. This is why... Though I joined the order, my mind was unable to enter enter the way. I was like a destitute son running away from his own father. I I only now realize that in spite of such listening to all the Dharma, if I do not practice it, I shall come to nothing as if I had heard nothing. Right? So, thereupon, the Buddha, from the svastika on his chest, sent out a radiant, multicolored, precious light which illuminated the Buddha lands in the ten directions as countless as the dust, and which, after shining on the heads of all the Buddhas everywhere, veered towards Ananda and the assembly. 
So, this is our, kind of our spastika, kind of super light. Do I need to explain the spastika to anybody? Everybody knows? Yeah? Okay. It's a bunch of light, yeah. Well, no, this, this symbol, this spastika, oh. has a long history that I hope everybody knows the like that this is an old symbol, mm. yada yada, peace, harmony. Yeah? Mm. Ha any hands if you're like, no, I think it's a Nazi symbol, why are you writing it on the board? <laughs> Great, okay, that's all I want to make sure. Some people, they, they didn't get the memory. All right, so, I, for the chakra, for the chakra heads, notice that we've got the crown chakra, third eye chakra, heart chakra kind of going on. We have a dissension of the sources of light here, which is why I wanted to draw these out. So now we're coming from the heart chakra, the svastika, which by the way, that svastika is one of the 32 marks of uh, enlightened being. They supposedly have a multicolored svastika on their chest that sort of psychedelically spins and emits light. And so that's what happened here. Thereupon, the Tathagata, from the svastika on his chest, sent out a radiant, multicolored, precious light, which illuminated the Buddha lands in ten directions as countless as the dust, and which, after shining on the heads of all Buddhas everywhere, veered to Ananda the assembly. The Buddha then said to Ananda, I now hoist the banner of great Dharma so that you and all living beings in the ten directions can realize the pure and bright, capital M, mind of your profound and subtle nature, and so win the Dharma eye that is pure and clear. Um, Ananda, a moment ago, you said you saw my shining fist. Tell me, how did its brightness come about? What caused it to take the form of a fist? And with what did you see it? Ananda replied, the Buddha's golden-hued body is like a precious hill and manifest the state of purity and cleanness. So that the fist shone. It was really my eyes that saw him bend the fingers and form a fist which was shown to us all. The Buddha said, In truth, the wise should be awakened by analogies. That's like a Jesus quote right there. Yes. Right? <laughs> the wise are awakened by analogies. Ananda, if I had no hand, I would have no fist. And if you had no eyes, you would have no faculty of seeing. Is there any connection between your organ of sight and my fist? Ananda replied, yes, of course, world honor one. If I had no eyes, I would have no faculty of seeing. So there is an analogy between my organ of sight and the Buddha's fist. The Buddha said, your reasoning is incorrect. For instance, a handless man has no fist, but a man without eyes still has his faculty of seeing. When you meet a blind man and ask him what he sees, he will tell you there is nothing but darkness in front of him. Therefore, though things may be screened from view, the faculty of seeing continues. Ananda said, if a blind man sees nothing but darkness before him, how can this be called seeing? 
the Buddha asked, is there any difference between the darkness seen by a blind man in front of him and that seen by a man who is not blind when he, when he is in a completely dark room? Ananda replied, world honor one, there is no difference. Is everybody with me on the analogy, or with his analogy? We who have sight, if we were in a pitch black room, would that be any different than a blind person? Right? Ananda replied, we're alone. There's no difference. The Buddha said, Ananda, when a blind man who used to see only darkness suddenly recovers his sight and sees everything clearly, if you say that it is his eyes which see, then when a man who saw only darkness in a room suddenly lights a lamp which enables him to see what is there, you would have to say that it is the lamp that sees. If a lamp can see things, then it should have the faculty of seeing and shouldn't be called a lamp. And if it really sees something, then it has nothing to do with you. Therefore, you should know that while the lamp can reveal form, seeing comes, comes from the eyes, but not from the lamp. Likewise, while your eyes can reveal form, the nature of seeing comes from the mind, not from the eyes. So, by the way, although Ananda and the assembly had just heard these words, they remained speechless. As they did not awaken to the teaching, they brought their palms together and awaited for the Buddha's further instruction with their minds set on hearing it. But I want to make sure we all understood what just happened. Right? So, he says, Ananda, you got a blind dude in a room. And you've got, or it's a blind dude out in the world. And you have yourself with sight, but you're in a pitch black room. Can't see anything. Blind dude, you same? Yes. Okay. So then, if the blind man out here, all of a sudden through an operation or whatever it is, can see, and you're saying it's because of his eyes that he can see, then if I'm in a pitch dark room, and all of a sudden somebody turns on a lamp, and it's because of the lamp that I can see, you would have to say that it's the lamp that sees, if it's the blind man's eyes that see. No? No. Not though. I thought that for a very long time until I understood what the hell the Buddha was talking about. Everybody, so let's go on. And then if we want to come back to that example, I would like to. But the Buddha knows. Ananda knows. Everybody was speechless. Everybody was a little like, that sounds uh, right. <laughs> so the Buddha then held up his shining hand, straightened his fingers to give further instruction to Ananda and the assembly and asked, after I attained enlightenment, I went to the deer park where I told Anyata Kundinya and his group of four bhikkhus, as well as all you monks and nuns and devotees, that all living beings fail to realize enlightenment and become arhats because they are misled by foreign dust, which creates delusion and distress by entering the mind. What at that time caused you all to awaken so that you can now win the holy fruit? 
Anyata Anyata Kudinya, the Buddha's first enlightened disciple, first sermon, first sutra. Anyata was the one that was like, ah, I got it. So Anyata Kudinya then rose from his seat and replied to the Buddha, I am now a senior in the assembly in which I am the only one who has acquired the art of interpreting because I had awakened to the meaning of the expression foreign dust so that I could win the holy fruit. World Honor One. Foreign dust is like a guest who stops at an inn where he passes the night or eats a meal and then packs his things and continues his journey because he cannot stay any longer. As to the host of the inn, he has nowhere to go. My deduction is that one who does not stay is a guest, and one who stays is a host. Consequently, a thing is foreign when it does not stay. Again, when the sun rises in a clear sky and its light enters the house through an opening, the dust is seen to dance in a ray of light, whereas the empty space does not move. I deduce that that which is still is the void, and that which moves is the dust. Consequently, a thing is dust when it moves. The Buddha said, so it is. The Buddha then bent, straightened, and rebent his fingers and asked Ananda, what did you see? Ananda replied, I saw the Buddha open and close his fist. The Buddha asked, you say that you saw my fist open and close. Was it my fist or your seeing that opened and closed? Ananda replied, as the Buddha's fist opened and closed, I saw that it and not the nature of my seeing did so by itself. The Buddha asked, which one moved and which one was still? Ananda replied, the Buddha's hand was not still. As to the nature of my seeing, which was already beyond the state of stillness, it could not move. The Buddha said, so it is. Thereupon, the Buddha sent out from his palm a radiant ray of light. And this actually shoots out like a laser beam, apparently. Thereupon, the Buddha sent out from his palm a radiant ray of light to Ananda's right. And this disciple turned to look at it. Then the Buddha sent out another ray to Ananda's left, and the disciple turned to look at it. The Buddha then asked, Why did your head move? Ananda replied, I saw the Buddha send out radiant rays of light to my right and my left. I turned to look at them, and so my head moved. The Buddha said, As you turn to the right and to the left to see the Buddha light, is it your head or your seeing that moves? Ananda replied, World under one, it is my head that turns. As to my seeing, which is already beyond the state of stillness, how could it move? The Buddha said, So it is. The Buddha then declared to the assembly, so every worldling knows that, so every worldling knows that that which moves is dust, and that he who does not stay is a guest. You have seen Ananda, whose head moved of itself, whereas his seeing was unmoved. 
You have also seen my fist, which opened and closed of itself, whereas his seeing neither expanded nor contracted. Why do you still regard the moving as your body and surroundings? And so, from beginning to end, allow your thoughts to rise and fall without interruption, thereby losing sight of your true nature and indulging in backward actions. By missing the true mind of your nature and by mistaking illusory objects for yourselves, you allow yourselves to be caught in the wheel of samsara thereby forcing yourselves to pass through transmigration after transmigration. After Ananda and the whole assembly had heard the Buddhist words, their bodies and minds became calm and composed. They thought, since the time without beginning, they had lost sight of their own minds by wrongly clinging to the shadows of their differentiated causal conditions. It's probably one of the freshest lines in here, right? They thought that since time without beginning, they had lost sight of their own minds by wrongly clinging to the shadows of their differentiated causal conditions. That's a mouthful, but that's it. Right? Wrongly clinging to shadows of differentiated causal conditions. So we're talking about not even clinging to the things. We're talking about clinging to shadows of impressions of the things. Right? Again, they thought since the time without beginning, they had lost sight of their own minds by wrongly clinging to the shadows of their differentiated causal conditions, and that they had only now awakened to all this. And like hungry babies who had not suckled for some time and suddenly saw its loving mother. They brought their palms together to thank the Buddha and wished to hear his teaching on the dual states of reality and unreality, existence and non-existence, mortality and immortality of the body and the mind. Okay. Is everybody okay? <laughs> the lamp in the room is one for thought. I think something that I could say, just if you're, if you're thinking about it, this idea of a blind person not seeing, right, and a sighted person being in a dark room, right? What's being referred to, and again, without going through the, the whole analogy again, what's being referred to here is, is that doesn't the sighted man no, he's not seeing anything. That's the mind we're talking about. The, the mind that knows. If you're speechless, it's fine. That's still kind of where we're at in the sutra. But that's kind of what's being referred to here is that even there's a point at which even Ananda, I, I might have, I thought I got it. But I feel like there was a point at which Ananda was even like, no, time out. That's not seeing. It's sort of like the, the, no, no, that's not seeing. And that's where I used to think, oh yeah, bad logic or outdated logic until I really grokked what was being spoken about here, which is, hmm. yeah, I just got to make sure. So one of the things that, that has dawned on me recently to think about in, in regards to all of this is 
This, these uh, 18 realms, based on sight, sound, all that, the big one, the big one for us is sight, right? The eyeball. Um, I, I sort of, uh, I mean, you know, the brain is, is this kind of central processing unit of all of these dharmas, so it kind of has a unique position in that case. But in terms of taking these five or sensory organs, if I were going to send you into an uh, unknown room with unknownness that might be dangerous, might not, or whatever, and you could only take with you one of your sense faculties, which would you take? It's kind of like not even a contest, right? If we're talking about survival, like there might be like a tiger in that room or something, right? Sight is sort of our main mode of, of understanding, followed by sound, followed by scent, followed by uh, taste, right? It dawned on me uh, kind of uh, last couple years in thinking about this that the object that an eyeball has a relationship with is, this is what the Chinese call it, it's called rupa. Chinese call it this, and it means the same thing, which is actually shape or form. So eyeballs actually sense shape and form. In the Buddhist uh, kind of view here, they don't sense light photonically, if you know what I mean, like as an object. What they're talking about is, is and this is what sort of dawned on me of like, uh, oh, that's a weird way of thinking about it. Imagine that you were just a big eyeball and you didn't have a tactile body and you didn't have ears and you didn't have a nose or a tongue and you were just an eyeball. All you'd have to go on is form, right? Because you don't get to confirm its three-dimensionalness with a tactile body, right? If you're just an eyeball, you're operating just on shape, right? That is what its sight is, is differentiating shadow and light. Seeing, knowing, that's not from an eyeball. This is a means, this is, as the sutra says, this is a way, this reveals form. The mind sees. Just like a light reveals form, but it's the mind that sees and knows. So that's what's being referred to here, by the way. Talk to me. Well, it's, it's both. If you don't have an eye, but you have light, you're not going to see. You're not going to perceive any forms. If you have a light, if you have a eyes but no no lamp, you're not going to perceive any forms. You need both the lamp to supply a stream of photons, as well as indeed a, a photon collector of some kind. And I encourage you to remember what the Buddha said: that the wise are awakened by analogies. So when I talk about a lamp that lights up a room to allow a sighted person to see. And then, by analogy, a blind person who then has their eyeballs restored and can see, if you say that it's because the eyeballs, which reveal form, can see, then it's the lamp that should be seeing. 
because it's what's revealing the form. So don't, don't start merging an analogy into any kind of physical, real world, but, but lamps. And, no, 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 no. You missed it. If you, it's, these are analogies. Let's see what the king has to say. So remember, this is like for his honor, King Prasanajit. So at that time, King Prasanajit then rose, and, rose from his seat and said to the Buddha, before I received the Buddha's instruction, I met the sage Katyayana and Vairaputra, who both said that when the body died, its annihilation was called nirvana. Although I have now met the Buddha, I am still not clear about this. All those here who are still in the stream of transmigration wish to know how to realize that mind and, and prove that it is beyond birth and death. And by the way, just so before the king's question, over here in conditioned Dharma land, right, in samsara, even these notions of birth and death are over here in conditioned land. Remember I just said, is it smooth? And you're like, no, I, I don't know. It depends. Show me another bowl, right? Are you alive or are you dead? These are, I mean, the whole universe, this whole thing is conditional, dependent, binary, oppositional, subject, object, and all that. This is the big one, though. This is the big one. I'm telling you, if you identify with that which is born, I've got bad news for you. All right. So just all of this talk about birth and death, all of that's in conditioned Dharma land, right? So the Buddha said to the king, Great king, I now ask you about your body of flesh and blood. Is it permanent and indestructible like a diamond vajra, or does it change and decay? The king replied, my body will decay and finally be destroyed. The Buddha asked, great king, you have not yet died. How do you know that your body will be destroyed? The king replied, world honor one, though my impermanent, changing and decaying body is not yet dead, I observe that it changes and decays without a moment's pause and is bound to go out like a fire that gradually burns out and will be redu reduced to naught. The Buddha asked, great king, you are old now, but how do you look compared to when you were a child? The king replied, world honor one, when I was a child, my skin glowed, and when I grew up, I was full of vigor, but now I age and I weaken. I grow thin and my spirits are dull. My hair is white and my face wrinkled so that I know I shall not live much longer. There is no comparison between now and when I was full of vitality. The Buddha said, great king, your appearance should not decline. The king replied, world honor one. It has been changing all the time, too imperceptibly for me to notice it. With the constant change of seasons, I have become what I am now. Why? Because when I was 20, though still young, I already looked older than when I was 10. While at 30, I was older still. As I am now 62, I am older than at 50 when I was stronger. World honor one, I notice this imperceptible change in every decade. 
But when I look into it closely, I see that it has occurred not only yearly, monthly, and daily, but in each moment of thought. That is why I know that my body is destined to final destruction. The Buddha said, Great king, you observe the ceaseless changing and know that you will die. But do you know that when you do, there is that which is in your body and does not die? The king brought his two palms together and said, I really do not know. The Buddha continued, I will now show you the self-nature which is beyond birth and death. Great king, how old were you when you first saw the Ganges River? The king replied, When I was three, my mother took me to worship the Deva Jiva, and as we crossed the river, I knew then that it was the Ganges River. The Buddha asked, Great king, as you just said, you were, old, you were older at 20 than at 10. And until you were 60, as days, months, and years succeed one another, your body changed in every moment of thought. When you saw the Ganges River at 3, was its water the same as when you saw it at 13? The king replied, It was the same when I was 3 and 13, and still is now that I am 62. The Buddha said, As you now notice your white hair and wrinkled face, there must be many more wrinkles than when you were a child. Today, when you see the Ganges River, do you notice that your seeing is old now while it was young then? The king replied, It has always been the same, world honored one. The Buddha said, Great king, though your face is wrinkled, the nature of this essence of your seeing is not. Therefore, that which is wrinkled changes, and that which is free from wrinkles is unchanging. The changing is subject to destruction, whereas the unchanging fundamentally is beyond birth and death. How can it be subject to your birth and death? Why do you bring out uh, Mascari Goshala's wrong teaching about the total, total annihilation at the end of life? So this is something that's refuted by Buddhism. The nihilistic notion that when we die, that's it. That's not a Buddhist idea. That's considered a heretical view in Buddhism. This a nihilistic, scientific, materialistic view that this is the result of the operation, and when the operation ceases, it's done. It's not a Buddhist view. Okay? It's far more complicated than that, of course, and that is what's been refuted here. All right? And that's why he's like, yo, why'd you even bring that up about annihilation, or nirvana meaning annihilation, like that we're totally gone? I'm telling you, something goes on. Upon hearing this, the king realized that after death, there will be no annihilation, but life again in another transmigration. He and the whole assembly were happy and enthusiastic at the teaching which they had never heard before. Questions, ideas, comments? The, 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 I'm imagining a couple students in here are like, but Michael, you, you told us once that about something. There's a lot in here that's, um, it's not contradictory at all, at all, at all. It's just sort of, um, you know, I've, I, I've, I've mentioned a lot this idea of me when I was a child, me when I was an adolescent, me when I was 20, 30, now I'm whatever going on. And that the clinging notion of self is that that was me at five, that was me at 10, that was me at 20, me now, that will need me then. 
And so the notion of a self, which Buddhism says there is no self, is the notion that there was something continuous. This kind of just said there was something continuous. But it didn't. It did and it didn't. And that's where this is truly third-turning, yogachara, mind-only Buddhism. But what the, what the Buddha was just saying to the king about his, his sight not being wrinkled, and, and even though his body has changed, the sight has not changed. It's very similar to what I was just saying about the, the mind that knows it's not seeing anything. The discerning mind, right? That's what's being referred to. Not the mind that is deluded, that sees the things. and is like, oh, look at the bull. I want the bull. Oh. That's the deluded mind trapped in samskara or samsara. All right, so, I mean, that's the question. Now you can ask. Because <laughs> you're asking about that, that, where you wanted. You wanted to know about the Asamskrita Dharma, right? Uh, let me just double check. Is the, is, the, what, is the scene of the Ganges River, is that, that's also an analogy? He's not talking about sight there. He's talking about the, the yeah, any Yeah, any Heraclitus, 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 Greek philosopher said you can never step in the same river twice. So when I read that, I was expecting somebody here had read Heraclitus and was like, no, no, King Buddha or whoever, it's not the same river. Yeah, they're talking like, uh, um, uh, I guess, nominally in the sense of you're gnome. And that when I saw you when I was 10 and I see you now, you're still gnome, right? And it's like, yeah, there's gnome. In that sense. So it's nom- nominally the Ganges River. The space, that. Not Heraclitus, the same exact water twice. But the seeing is not seeing. Right. He, the Buddha is referring to the seeing. Which again, if you, if you think of my analogy of being just a giant eyeball. Right? That's sort of disambiguating shadow and light. That's not this seeing. Right? This is, this is all five, all six sense organs firing at once and through a funnel of samskaras and interpretation and meaning. And, da, 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 and then I arrive at, quote, seeing. No, 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 no. The, this little dif- disambiguating shadow and light, that's just part of this. And if you were to get rid of that faculty and be a blind person, your mind would still work. In fact, you would know you were blind, right? And that's what we're talking about, the, the mind that knows. This is subtle stuff, and I do want to get to the, the membrane, right? Or whatever, right? The membrane, the ah, this is somehow related to this. We, somehow through this, we get to this. So there's a relationship here, right? That, again, what about this membrane that's separating the two in, in that sense? Or, or that's what we're interested in, is how these two relate to one another. One more question. Yeah, well, so the mind that, two things, the mind that sees images without light and without the use of the eye in a dream is that a different mind? And and uh, when I hear a child 
Now it's a hearing dharma, I understand, but I hear a child and I and my mind sees a child. I'm not using my eyes to see the child. That's so. Is that um, is that the thing that is on the other side of the membrane? So that's the that, so there was the part in here where he says to Ananda, let me find it. Even if you succeed, Ananda, in putting an end to all seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, touching, and knowing, and so preserve inner quiet, the shadow of your differentiation of dharma still remains. And that's exactly what in Buddhism explains dreams, is that the reason why a dream looks exactly like this is because I'm carrying the shadow of my differentiation of the conditioned things into the dream. But what the dream especially lucid dream practice can show you is that this is that same process. And, and I, this is so subtle, but this is, this is it. Um, again, this is all conditioned on something. And there's two things going on here. One is that I've talked a lot about, um, call it happiness or joy, but the way I talk about it is, is that let's say that my greatest joy, my pleasure, uh, is derives from bowls. I just love them. And so my happiness is dependent upon my bowl. Happy bowl, right? The problem with this happiness is that when my bowl goes away, oh, when my bowl goes, my, my happiness was dependent on my bowl. Right? So a happiness that doesn't come from an object, because objects can be stolen, they can break. If you're a Buddhist, you know they don't exist to begin with, all that, right? So happiness dependent on this, no good, right? Because it's dependent, and then it'll go away. What about happiness depend? Oh, I'm looking, my socks match my sweater today. So like, I'm looking good today. So I'm so happy dependent on the way I feel. But of course, that is dependent on how I'm dressed or how I'm feeling. And all of a sudden, I'm wearing something else. I'm not feeling so good about myself. So happiness being dependent, joy being dependent, anything being dependent. Buddhism is trying, is offering us all access to independent joy, independent happiness, meaning a happiness and a joy that's not dependent on anything in Mara's realm, not dependent on anything here. And the reason why it's wise to not be dependent on anything here is because if you really, really thought about this little drawing, right? The interesting thing about this drawing You've got six consciousnesses all thinking they're pointing at the bowl. It, it sure sounds like a bowl. It sure looks like a bowl. Smells like a bowl. Feels like a bowl. Must be, must be a bowl. Now, you see how you can have a bunch of sensory experience and then come to the conclusion that there's a sensory object there? when actually you've just been completely deceived by your senses and are therefore trapped in an endless cycle of transmigration, death, and rebirth? Are they, are they trying to say something? I just never know 
direction is they're, they're pointing at. Like it's, I feel like I want to be grounded in. They're not just trying to say like, uh, you know, it's all just a fabrication or it's all in your head type of thing. That it's more like an interplay of like, you know, accepting that things are real. There's a way in which you can experience them unconditioned. That is the nirvana piece. Two things are going on. One is that. Through the primarily through the practice of meditation and calming the mind down, we have access to a experience or feeling of the unconditioned. This is called nirvana. So we've got access to it, and in a sense, a of course, a Buddha is in nirvana, and that doesn't mean dead. What it means is is that a Buddha has no more attachment to anything in samsara, anything in Mara's realm over here, no more attachment to it. And attachment's deep, because attachment or doesn't just mean this. Attachment means bull! <laughs> bull, it's a bull! Clinging attachment to the idea that that's a bull. I've just shown you it's not. And so clinging to it as that is a form of clinging. So the idea is that first we cling to the notion of it being a bull, and then I love bulls, right? But I, I, there's a mistake to begin with, that it's a bull, and then I'm like, oh, look, my mistake. I love my mistakes, right? That's what's going on here. So again, there's nothing in the middle here. These, <laughs> these Vijnanas, right? These are just ideas in our head based on basically based on like trauma and past experiences that's what's going on and so the whole practice is trying to access the unconditioned <laughs> that can be done by peeling away lakshana and trying to arrive at the unconditioned it can be from recognizing that all of this is being produced by a perturbed disturbed mind that's all agitated, and it's like, what, what was that? What, what was that? What was that? Oh, look, bull. Oh, my God. Like, it's really crazy in our heads projecting all of this stuff we're reacting to. And so you can do the shamatha common practices to access this, because this actually arises once all of this ceases. That's membrane, by the way. You're the membrane. You're keeping yourself... This is you, habits, all that. So you have an arrow pointing <laughs> to the Asham Krita. You have that membrane. It's on the left of the board compared to the Asham Krita. It's on the right of the board. Yeah. Uh, so, and then you see the bowl doesn't exist. Uh, so because there's nothing in the middle, right? Uh, how do I know that this, this thing on the left exists? And, and because it's yeah. still positioned in the middle of everything else, and it's rubbing my brain in the box number six. And, uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. Okay. Um, well, because here, here's why. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because the Buddha said, you're still using your clinging mind to listen to my dharma. Since, however, this dharma is also causal, you fail to realize the dharma nature. 
This is like a man pointing a finger at the moon to show it to others who should follow the direction of the finger to look at the moon. If they look at the finger and mistake it for the moon, they lose sight of both the moon and the finger. Why? Because the bright moon is actually being pointed at and they both lose sight of the finger, which is doing some pointing, and they fail to distinguish between the states of brightness and darkness. Why? Because they mistake the finger for the bright moon and are not clear about brightness and darkness. So that's the Buddha's answers to what you just said or asked. Last week, uh, someone brought up this idea of the bright, pure mind and then the darkness. And that sounds oppositional, binary, dualistic. That, and so we need to like, put the brakes on. Uh, an example that I've, I, I have said is it's like um, violence. In Buddhism, there's no middle path to violence. There's not an acceptable middle path amount. No, 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 no violence. In the same way, when Buddhism is trying to like talk about what's going on here, they will use the language of being dualistic, subject, object, deluded mind, all of that. That's like dark, deluded, like being in a dark room and not knowing where you are. It's dark and deluded in there. We want bright seeing everywhere. So deluded, discriminatory, this is not deluded, not discriminatory, not dualistic. Just because I have put it up here dualistically, do not mistake the finger pointing at the moon. <laughs> For the milk. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> That's the Dharma for real. And it also explains all of that Diamond Sutra language of what's a this is not a that. That's why it's a that. Buddhism knows what it's doing. You, you, if you're on high alert, like uh, dualistic patrol, where you're like, <laughs> dualism, dualism, Buddhism taught you how to do that. <laughs> but if you point at the moon, it's pretty easy for me to look up and see the moon, right? When you point at this thing, uh, there's a leap of faith, right? Um, <laughs> yes, and last week I said this about this amazing Sharangama Sutra, that, this, that reading this or having someone walk you through it is a meditation, is a process, and it is a process of deconstruction of a sort, a deconstruction of the self. And so I would not ask you, the Buddha would not ask you at all, ever, to accept that there is such a thing as an unconditioned dharma, nirvana, and all of that at all. What this sutra has asked you, though, is that do you think your mind's inside your body? Do you think it's outside? Do you? And the idea of this sutra is you, you, go explore Ask yourself, is, is it in there? Is it out there? Is it an aperture? Is it hidden? Is it here? Is it there? Is it there? And then think about this analogy of the blind man and the lamp and the light. And then think about King Prasanajit and him seeing the river. Think about all that. That's all. There's no, nobody's asking for the leap of faith at all. This is like a Dharma talk, so I'm kind of saying that traditionally people have talked about <laughs> This Asamskrita Dharma, Buddha talks about Asamskrita Dharma. There's also a certain thing where like a lot of the things the Buddha has said, 
I have had an experience of their truthfulness. So I'm sort of on board now in that sense of like, he says there's an asamskrita dharma too? Okay. Like, there's no blind faith in that. There's an excitement. (laughs) Like, uh, really? If you know what I mean. So there's two things going on there. One, nobody wants you to believe it unless you really see it. And two, there's a certain way in which all of this is built on It's built on like, you know what? I didn't cling as much to something and I didn't suffer as much. Wow, this Dharma thing might be bright. Do you know what I mean? It's about having moments when you yourself have seen, oh yeah, that Dharmic truth, that second and third noble truth about attachment and suffering. He's right. That's it. That's all, that's the only, and there is a sutra in which the Buddha says, you don't believe anything because you've read it, you've heard it, or even because I, the Buddha, have said it. You only believe something's true if you've had an experience of its truthfulness. Period. Sorry, I have another question. That's okay. <laughs> so, so, can, so the way you describe it is also, could it be seen as a North Star also, or some kind of thing that it's not this, because, because if it's unconditioned, it's unconditioned, right? So there's kind of a jump or something uh, but, but is there like a path towards that that is like getting better and better and more like this? But it's more unconditioned, even though it's not, it's still conditioned? Yes. Well, this gets into some really, <laughs> uh, you know, hairy Buddhist discourse about sudden and gradual enlightenment, actually. But the basic idea is either, either you accept, by the way, Anyata's dust, Foreign dust. Have you guys? I didn't mention it when I read it, but remember the the Hui Nung poem. Uh, the mind is like a mirror, bright, not letting any dust settle, so it can reflect perfectly right. That the metaphor of dust settling, and dust is what moves, and the void or the mind is that which stays. Right, the guest and the host. The guest comes and goes, but the host stays. All conditioned dharmas come and go. All conditioned dharmas are like dust on the eye or dust on the mind, right? Back real quick, uh, Ananda seeing the Buddha's hand move, and he asked, was it your mind that moved or my hand that moved, right? And he was like, no, it was your hand that moved, but not my mind. A good analogy of that is thinking of a mirror. If I had a mirror right here and I went like this, did the mirror move? Right? You see what I'm saying? Like, if you didn't have access to my hand, it was back here, and you just had the image, and I moved my hand, and so the image moved, would you say that the mirror moved? No, right? It was the hand that moved. The mirror stayed still. That analogy is operating in Buddhism. The mind, especially the enlightened mind, is like a mirror. And it just reflects reality perfectly and doesn't move. The mirror of the mind, though, has dust settling all on it. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. <laughs> And so we wipe the mirror of the dust, which means either we don't cling to the things of this world, getting worked up by them, getting fooled by them, wanting them, desiring them, or not wanting them, rejecting them. Right? If we do all of that, the dust cannot settle on the mirror. 
And again, in the gradual school, it takes a long time to give up these habits. Like to not want this stuff. And, and, and remember, you, you could either want it or you could not want it. Being in a depressed state where you don't want anything, you don't even want to live, that is not good in Buddhism. That is not enlightened detachment from reality. If you don't want it. Do you see what I'm saying? It's very important to recognize this in Buddhism, that you can either want it too much or you cannot want it too much. It's about a healthy relationship with bowls and everything <laughs> in that way, right? Okay, a few more questions. Do you know anyone who, or yourself, have, have achieved nirvana? Um, who has experienced this that you know? Um, I do, I'll say this. I think it's truly a rare state. Buddhism says that. Not easy. If it were easy, it would all kind of already all be there in that way. Uh, I have certainly met some people in my life that I think are close. Uh, In certain meditative states, I have felt like I've brushed up against something in that sense. A certain freedom, liberation in geonic states of feeling like, wow, if I go a little further here... So not, I don't feel like I've ever been there, but I believe it. It's, I feel like through the binoculars, I've sort of seen it, so to speak. And again, I feel like I've met some people that have the right attitude towards this world. Because I got to tell you, this is not as mystical as it sounds. The nirvanic state is not as mystical as it sounds. I used to think this was more mystical than it is. I actually believe now the nirvanic state of a Buddha is just about having the healthiest relationship with this world as possible. And by healthiest, I mean not wanting it and not rejecting it in that way. That's a Buddha. Healthiest relationship with the things of this world. And I mean everything in this world. And that's a lot, right? But in that sense, I've met people who I feel like have a real healthy relationship and have displayed nirvanic qualities. But of course, I've sort of seen, you know, peeked behind the the wherever and know they're human and all of that. So, but I don't know. I do think it's sort of an achievable state. I feel like it kind of has to be in that sense. But, hmm? Noah, you got something? Two things. So I, just a story years ago, I lived with a, a young man who was partially pretty blind. And I was in the other room and always I heard him say, fire, fire. And he was, uh, he had stuck his, the mittens into the oven, a uh, small toaster of it, and the mittens had caught fire. And he was trying to put the fire out, hmm. not seeing that they were the mittens. Huh. So he's trying, he's like, fire, fire, fire. And I grabbed the mittens, I threw them in the sink. And he said, oh, your mittens were on fire. And he just busted out laughing, thought that was the funniest thing. So That's what is, what, the, that thing of seeing and not seeing was relevant uh, in, in that image of this guy seeing fire, but not seeing, mm-hmm. not knowing where it was, but knowing, sensing and smelling it. Mm-hmm. Second thing is, what happened to the prostitute? She's still in the audience, by the way. Oh, okay. She comes up later. Oh. I haven't gotten there yet. But yeah, she and Ananda came via the light right, parade. Right. That's why I was they came together. Yeah. I wanted to say something about what you just said before that. Fire. Um, mm-hmm. There's a great, it's not a Radiolab podcast, but it's, all, it, it's an NPR-ish one, The Invisibles, I think it was. I'm not a big podcast person. I just happened to catch this one. Invisibilia? Maybe. 
Maybe, but it's so it's a pod, NPR-ish podcast world thing, which that is too. Um, and it was about, and there's a few stories of this, but this just happened to be one about one guy, an echolocutor, uh, a blind guy who clicks. Not even, you know, he doesn't even tap, he clicks. And he rides a bicycle. Rides a bicycle. And in the podcast, he's talking about how he's like, no, no, I'm not blind. Because he's like, there's a pole there, there's a pole there, there's this many people in the room, they're sitting on this many chairs, da-da-da. What, what more do you want? That is truly what the sutra is getting at in terms of seeing, because the echolocutor is using the sound, using his body, using it all to put together a mental image of what's going on here. That's what the Buddha is talking about, that ability to put together a mental image, not the delusion of what the mental image is. And not being tricked by it and then further, you know, led astray by it. But the, the knowing, that's, again, that's, that's why it's possible. Because the knowing mind is operating in both. Yeah, uh, answer your question, yeah, this is sort of Buddha nature. Because this is what's going on underneath the delusive reality. So we're all deluded, but we have this kind of nirvanic element, Buddha nature. And next week, we are going to liberate our minds from these little prisons. And the Buddha is going to take our minds outside the Jetavana and show us how our mind is actually the size and extent of the universe. And it's our deluded thinking that keeps it between the ears and behind the eyes, trapped. So stay tuned. Thank you all very much. I'll see you next week.